The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. So in that January congregational meeting, uh, I shared that one of the primary focuses for this year is, is going to be on the rebuilding of community at ICC. Uh, this pandemic that we've been going through for the last several years has really done a number to us as a church in terms of the connectedness that we feel with one another. For months, we were in lockdown where we couldn't even really see each other physically. And so the only experience of church that we had was watching a YouTube uh, video week after week. And then even once the doors began to open and we can start coming in person again, I think there was a lot of awkwardness that all of us felt of people who had been regular attenders of the church prior to the pandemic suddenly coming back and discovering that there was this whole wave of people that they had never met before because a lot of people started attending ICC uh, during the pandemic. And so it created all of this awkwardness of people introducing themselves as they, oh, are you new to ICC? And they go, no, I've been here for 10 years or something. You realize, oh, I'm the new one, and I guess I don't know you then. And so that was the real challenge that I laid uh, to the church in January is let us make intentional efforts of reaching out to one another to strengthen the relationships in our church that have really been strained during these last couple of years. Um, and so for this mid-year meeting, I want to continue on this theme of building community here at ICC, but with a special focus to the relaunching of our life groups program, which is basically the name we give to our small group system here at ICC. And as many of you may know, there have been some significant changes that we made to our small group system. We used to call them community groups, and the truth is that a lot of our community groups were enormous. Some of them were bordering on 40 members uh, in those groups. And so one of the most drastic changes we made by calling them life groups now is to go from these huge community groups to much smaller, like three to five families or individuals uh, in a single life group doing life together. Uh, another subst substantial change that we made is that we um, stopped calling people leaders of these small groups, but instead we started using the, the term facilitator, and that was a much more shrunken down role. When we had these community group leaders, they were basically acting like mini pastors of little home congregations, and a lot of expectation was put on them, and so in a lot of ways it was just a really heavy burden for a single member of that group to carry, of trying to oversee all of the member care issues and all the other things that are going on in that setting. And so instead, with these coordinators, we've really narrowed the focus to much more of an administrative responsibility of sending out emails and coordinating gatherings and things like that and making sure that things run smoothly. And so, and so what I want to say is this. As the pastors talked about this past year and looking back at what happened, we realized that although we made these format changes to our small group system that were pretty significant, um, along with those format changes, we didn't always do the best job of communicating with you enough um, the goals behind these changes. And so I think some of you walked into it and go, okay, it used to be community groups, and now it's life groups, and it was just semantic. And, and you know, we used to call this guy a leader, 
but now he's a coordinator. And is it really just labels that we're throwing around that are new terms? And so um, even in my message today, what I hope to do is to try to help you to understand some of the rationale behind some of these changes that we've made to our small group system and why they are so important for the life of our church. And I think we're going to hit on some of the other aspects of it uh, repeatedly throughout this year so that you really get a sense of what we are looking for and aiming for in the building of community through our small group system here at ICC. So let me begin by sort of um, presenting to you a couple of different thoughts here, maybe some thought experiments here. Think about the way that most church sanctuaries are designed. Let's begin there. Um, from the moment that you walk into a typical church sanctuary, there's a clear message that is being communicated about the most important aspects of that service that you're taking part in, largely happening up here on the stage. Um, in fact, a lot of church stages, like this one here, are elevated on a platform. They're well lit by these stage lights. And there's this professional sound system that amplifies my voice. And all of that is so that you could see and hear what's happening up here. Um, notice also that all of the seats are facing in one direction. While those on the stage are facing the crowd. And really, if you think about it, the only other place where you experience something like this is in a lecture hall or maybe in a theater. And so by the very design of this space, sanctuaries invite members to assume a posture of passivity in worship, maybe even a consumeristic mindset. In other words, you are in the audience seats while the performers are up here on the stage. And what I'm saying is this. Simply by this arrangement alone, there is a message being sent to all of you about the nature of the kind of gatherings we do in this type of room called the sanctuary, in this space. And I think there's a problem in that. There's a significant problem with that mindset. Now, thought number two. I want you to think for a minute about what the spaces of worship were like in ancient times. Because in ancient times, the places of worship were called temples. And archaeological evidence, historians tell us that these temples, wherever you go, were generally impressive, incredibly expensive structures. And they communicated beauty and power and authority. And these temples were all just about all categorically majestic and awe-inspiring spaces. Why? Because the ancients considered them to be houses of worship where they worshiped their gods. And you know, the ancient Jews were no different in this tradition because they had built a beautiful temple on the top of the city of Jerusalem. And it was 
gilded with gold so that those who witnessed the temple in those days said that the temple in Jerusalem shone like a sun, reflecting this light in this amazingly brilliant way. Visitors to Jerusalem were awestruck by the beauty of the temple. And so throughout the ancient world, worshipers visited temples to worship their gods. And so it would have been totally natural and even expected that when Christianity was birthed, that Christians would also build their own temple for the worship of their God. But what is so interesting is that this is not what Christians did. Instead, if you read the New Testament, what you discover is that the most common place of worship, places of worship for the early church were the humble homes of the believers. And so when you read the New Testament, over and over again, there are these references to churches that were meeting in the members' homes. Acts 20, verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. And so Paul talks about this nature of his teaching ministry, literally jumping from one church member's home to the next. And the reason why that was necessary is because that is where the believers were worshiping. 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. Colossians 4, 15, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And there are just verse after verse of these type of phrasings where it says, and the church that meets there in this person's house or to this person's house. This decision for the early believers to not create any special sacred meeting places or temples communicated a pretty clear message to the world. And it was basically that the people are the church. The people are the temple of God, where God dwells among them, not a sacred building or a particular location. That's how ancient Christianity started. But at the same time, we can say this, is that we have definitely drifted away from this heritage. Building impressive church buildings that we have designated now as special places of worship. And so it's not surprising that the average Christian in America today thinks of church as a location or as an event, not as a people. And so we often throw around phrases like, I'm going to church, which means I'm going to a building, or I'm going to an event, which is language that the New Testament has never used. Another thing I think I can say which is a bit sad is for many of us, the only context in which we've ever actually interacted with each other is in this building. Among us here, very few of us have stepped foot in one another's homes and actually have had fellowship in that setting of each other's houses. This 
is the whole experience of church for most of us. Listen, I'm not saying that it's wrong or unbiblical for a group of believers to own their own building, okay? Um, I'm asking you these questions because I want us to wrestle with what are the unintended consequences of focusing so much attention in these type of large gatherings in a centralized location where we own a building that we call our church? Frank Viola in his book, Reimagining Church, writes this. Institutional churches in the United States alone own over $230 billion worth of real estate. And much of that money is borrowed. In other words, it's debt. Christians give between $9 and $11 billion a year on church buildings. Winston Churchill wisely said, quote, First, we shape our buildings. Thereafter, they shape us. The interior structure of the building is not designed for interpersonal communication, mutual ministry, or spiritual fellowship. Instead, it's designed for a rigid, one-way communication, pulpit to pew, leader to congregation. So as Viola points out, the financial burden that many churches experience because of building ownership can be crushing. And you can see that with churches often doing capital campaign drives and fundraising events, all to be able to maintain these expensive properties. But the second point that Viola makes about how our buildings shape us and form the way that we relate to one another is actually, I would argue, far more important. If you have ever in your life attended a megachurch, the moment that you drive onto that campus, you are immediately struck by how small and insignificant you are to that organization and literally how anonymous you are in that place. If you are not there, chances are no one's going to notice. But the point is, you don't have to attend a megachurch to feel that way. Even in much smaller churches like our own, you can still feel like your presence doesn't really matter when it comes to just what's happening here on a Sunday morning. Because when we get together in a big room like this with a stage at the front and all the chairs facing one way, there's a certain mindset, isn't there, of what our attitude is in this moment. How do you see your role in this service right now? What is it that you are being asked to do as a part of this act of worship? Now imagine gathering together in a circle in someone's living room with a much smaller group of trusted friends. And think of how different your mindset would be in that setting in that context. Instead of seeing ourselves as part of an audience, we're much more likely to enter into that living room thinking, I'm a participant in what's happening here. I have an important role to play in what's happening here. And if I am not here in this gathering, I will be missed 
people will wonder where I am this week. And I would argue that this is much closer to the worship gatherings we find in the New Testament when you look at the Bible. Frank Viola says this again in Reimagining Church. The notion of a sermon-focused, pulpit-to-pew, audience-style church service was alien to the early church Christians. Today, the weekly, quote, church service is designed for worship, the hearing of a sermon, and in some cases, evangelism. But in the first century church, the governing purpose of the church meeting was quite different. The purpose was mutual edification. That's a key word here, mutual edification. In other words, when the early Christians gathered together, central to the understanding of what was happening in that place was that we all come to contribute something to this act of worship. Everyone expected to receive something from that service, but they also came expecting to give something to that service as well. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, Paul writes, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So Paul is giving detailed instructions about how to do worship when the churches are gathering together. And in those instructions, he assumes that people have come with something to bring to the table says, when you are gathering, so you are coming together and one of you has a song that you want to share with the group. Or one of you has this teaching that you want to give to people because God has convicted you with his truth in a very particular way. One of you may want to give testimony of what God has done in your life. Others of you may have a word of prophecy or a prophetic word or something like that to give in this setting. And so what he wants to make sure is that things are done in an orderly manner. That is not a concern for us in this type of church setting, is there? Because there's not going to be no disruptions. This program is on wheels, on rails, right? It's going to flow exactly as the pastors have laid it out to be. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. This becomes the burden of the early Christians is how can I encourage my brother or sister in Christ in our gathering today? Imagine driving to the service, in other words, and instead of thinking about whether or not you are going to get anything out of the worship songs or about the sermon today, if what was burdening your heart were the specific people that God has placed on your heart. And so when you come into this place, what you are thinking is, what are the opportunities that I have to encourage that brother or sister before we part ways in this gathering today? Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Again, it's just the scriptures are filled with this, this picture that when you gather together, each of you has something to contribute to what's happening here as the Spirit leads you. There's a sense of freedom and openness and spontaneity to these gatherings. And I'm going to tell you this right now. 
All of these commands found in the New Testament, we're not going to experience that in this setting, okay? It's just not going to happen. Um, if we really want to experience that sense of mutual encouragement, where I am coming to minister to you, even as you are coming to minister to me, we're going to have to find it elsewhere. And this is why we, we're talking today about this idea of home fellowships and what's happening in our life groups. And the truth is, it's not just about smaller scale, changing locations from a church building to someone's house. It's also about how we are walking with God in the confidence that God actually wants to do this in and through us to be a blessing to other people. Frank Viola, again, writes, the only sustaining force of the early church gathering was the life of the Holy Spirit. Thus, if the spiritual life of the church was at low ebb, everyone would notice it in the gathering. They couldn't overlook the cold chill of silence. What he's saying is this. If you gather together, and this is about mutual encouragement, and you say, who has a word from the Lord? And everyone just kind of puts their hands in the pocket, stares at each other, and goes, I don't know, man. <laughs> it's a pretty normal week for me. And does anyone have a song they want to share? And everyone goes, no, nah, not really. <laughs> um, and you say, well, does anyone want to testify what God's been doing in your midst? And goes, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know if I saw God at all. And, and that happens week after week. At some point, someone's going to say, what's the point? <laughs> Why are we even meeting like this? Because it's pretty clear that none of us really feel like God is doing anything in our lives. Compare that to a professional Sunday service like this, where no matter what the state of your heart is or what your relationship with God is, we can entertain you. <laughs> I mean, the preacher is polished enough as a public speaker. And the worship band is gifted enough that you can, quote, leave blessed and feeling like you got something out of that worship service. Just because of the professionalism and the smoothness of what happens up here as a performance. But when we gather as a small group of a half dozen people in someone's house and says, what is God doing among us? If the Spirit is not doing something among us, then there isn't much point in that gathering, is there? And that's something for all of us to wrestle with in our hearts. What does it mean for me to be a blessing to others in my life? What is God doing in my life? Um, my worry is that for so much of us, our engagement with God has to do with our personal needs, things that I am asking of God for my life. But so much of the New Testament is filled with seeking the empowerment and enablement of God so that I can bless others and minister to others and encourage them as the Holy Spirit is at work in my life. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 16, of verses that I think many of you no, well. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, 
we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I think what Paul is saying here is this. This ministry to one another, or what uh, Viola calls mutual edification, is how we reach spiritual maturity both individually and as a community. In other words, that's how discipleship happens. I think for many of us, our skewed view of discipleship is, i got to find somebody that's so spiritually mature and they'll become my mentor. And then when I can sit under their teaching and their influence for years, then finally I'll be ready to call myself a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'm not really sure that that's the model of discipleship that the New Testament teaches. Instead, I think what's happening is that as we together in the two directions giving and receiving to each other in the context of worship and fellowship and loving each other, do this work of ministry to one another, that's how we reach spiritual maturity and attain to the Christ-likeness that God has called us to. And I'm telling you, that's so limited in experiencing any of those realities in a Sunday service in a setting like a church sanctuary. Uh, as I closed the Sermon on the Mount series, I talked about this um, scenario of trying to learn swimming through the classroom and how ridiculous that is, right? Of, of sitting there learning all the physics of the swimming strokes and, and then maybe at the very end of that lesson you go into the water and you kind of splash around the water and then you go, hey, we're all swimmers now. <laughs> It would be ridiculous. You will drown if you go into the deep end of the pool after those swimming classes. And I think discipleship is no different. We don't really become Christ-like followers who really reflect the heart of God until we actually live that life and enter into the life of actually um, doing what Christ has called us to do. You know, it's interesting in my medical training, um, for the f I, I've, I've made reference to this before, but in the first two years, everything is classroom. And you have to jam this un insane amount of knowledge into your head from these medical textbooks. But after those two years are done, they throw you out of the nest and put you into the hospital. And it is terrifying because for the next two years, it's not about textbook learning. It's about taking everything that you learned in those first two years and now putting it to practice by actually taking care of patients in the hospital. And there is this saying in medical school which basically goes like this, see one, do one, teach one, okay? See one, do one, teach one. And that is crazy because after you saw one, you say, I am not ready to do one. I need to see 20, and then I will maybe attempt to do one. As a third-year medical student, I remember being taken to a patient's bedside, and we were doing a procedure called a paracentesis, where you take this enormously long needle and literally stick it in someone's abdomen. <laughs> and when I first saw the doctor do that, my eyes got really big, and I freaked out. And this is what the doctor said. I'm going to show you only once, Steve, and you're doing the next one. 
I said, no way. There is no way I'm doing that next. But the more I thought about it, I said, why do I need to see 20 of these? What am I going to see the second, third, fourth, fifth time of this? Because I already knew everything. I read the textbooks on it. I know what to do. It's just that I cannot bring myself to take the huge needle and stick it in that person's stomach. But sure enough, the very next case, the doctor handed me the needle goes, you do it, Steve. You saw me do it. And the crazy thing is, I did it. And I didn't kill the patient, you know. <laughs> it felt like a minor miracle to me. And then the crazy thing was it wasn't long before I was teaching others how to do a paracentesis. That's how doctors learn their trade. It's terrifying. But until you actually are willing to do these things, you're not a competent doctor who can help people. And I think discipleship is a lot like that. You can hear sermon after sermon of all of the great things that God wants for us. But until we actually put it into practice in the act of ministry to others, of claiming the promises of God, and seeing how we can take some risks in faith, and seeing how God uses us to be a blessing to others, we don't really become followers of Jesus Christ, do we? In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, as you're hearing my sermon today, you may be thinking, aren't you basically just shooting yourself in the foot? Like you're sitting there trashing the very event that we're a part of right now and basically saying we shouldn't be doing this. I'm not necessarily saying that there's no point in this kind of gathering, okay? Um, I think actually there is an argument for why we all gather like this. One of the things that I think a gathering like this does is express the unity of the body of Christ when we all gather together. Another thing is when we're worshiping God and we're singing songs to him and things like that, I think it glorifies God to be together like this in one big room and giving honor to God as we worship his name. I think there are purposes for these large group gatherings. But what I also want to say is that a lot of what the New Testament is teaching in this one anothering of how we care for each other can only be experienced in a much smaller setting. And so even in the early church, we see how they gathered as one large group in the temple courts and worshiped together. But then also much of their experience of the faith happened in much smaller households as they worshiped together in those smaller settings. And I, I, I think that's why we are emphasizing life groups so much here at ICC, our small group system. The one anothering that is found throughout the New Testament is best practiced in this setting of intimacy that is found in these home fellowships. It's where we can develop these kind of trusting relationships with each other when we actually break bread together and sit together over a meal and get to really know one another because that trust is absolutely necessary to go to some of the deep places that we need to go to to one another. And the smaller groups are absolutely needed to experience that. I have realized as a pastor very quickly that I cannot truly disciple from the pulpit. Yes, I can prepare a sermon. 
And yes, you may even like that sermon that you hear. But real discipleship has to be much more than a Sunday sermon every week. And so that's one of the things that we want to see happen in our church is just about every one of you joining one of these home fellowships where you make a commitment to one another to say, I will be there for you and I hope you will be there for me. And it's one of the reasons why we wanted to shrink the size of the groups because even when you have 30, 40 people, that's too thin to have that level of depth and commitment to one another. It's also why we went away from calling someone a small group leader or a community group leader to just calling it a facilitator because we realized that as long as there's someone called a leader, then all the members in that small group just kind of look to that person and go, well, you're going to organize something for that or something like that? And everyone's just waiting for that person to do everything. And so by getting rid of the small group leader, in a way for us, it's sort of like taking the training wheels off of our small group system and saying, listen, you will either swim or you will sink. And it's up to every person in this group to have ownership over it and say, I will do my part in doing what I can to make sure that this group is a success and that we really are there for each other. And so that's our hope and what we want to experience even as we relaunch life groups this year is that as the Spirit of God is in each one of us and as God is at work in my life, then as we gather in these home fellowships, when we meet together, what it means is I have something to bring to the table. I have something to share and contribute to this gathering. And so when you come, maybe you could say, could we sing this song? Because this song has been so meaningful to me this week. And particularly these lyrics in this song have really ministered to me. And as you share that, and as the group sings that song to one another, that in and of itself can be a ministry. My prayer is that as you gather like this, there could be moments when, yes, the Bible study is on this, but God did something really awesome in your life, and you want to testify to that. And so you share that in small group and say, could I just share what God has done in my life this week? And I'm telling you, if that is what you're experiencing in your small group, some incredibly powerful things are going to happen in your midst. And your group is going to reach spiritual maturity, even as you experience spiritual maturity by seeing God using you in that way to minister to others. And so what are we asking of you as you think about these life groups? If you can go to that next slide here. We do really want you, if you've been part of this life group system this past year, to talk with your life groups and say, hey, do we really want to stay together for this coming year? If not, then maybe it'd be better for us to just kind of look around and see other groups that we want to get to know. Now, we need to know that ASAP. So if your group hasn't already discussed it, it's not the biggest deal. It's okay for you to even individually register your preferences on that registration form about whether you want to stay in the same life group or sort of disperse. And that's okay to just register that on the form itself. But the registrations will close next Sunday, August 28th, okay? And then once we close the registration, over that next week, the pastors will basically put together the new life groups for this coming year, and we'll announce them really shortly within a week and tell you which life group that you're in. Now, obviously, there's a lot of preferences and needs and limitations everyone has. We're not going to be able to accommodate everyone in terms of days that are there available and geography, where they're living, and people that they want to be with. But we will do our best to try to accommodate something that works for everyone. And you can go to our website or go to the Church Center app and register for a life group 
through that way. But my sincere hope is this, is sitting here on a Sunday morning here in the sanctuary would not be your sole experience of ICC here at our church. This represents only a narrow sliver, I believe, of what it means to be in community here at this church. The vast majority of what it means to live out our Christian faith is not going to be done in this room, in this setting. It's going to be as the members of our church get together in much smaller gatherings and begin to minister to each other and share life together and break bread together and basically love one another as Christ has loved us. And that, I think, is the commitment we're invited to. That is the road to discipleship that God invites us to, to experience the kind of exciting growth he wants for us this year. Let's come to God in prayer, and we will come in a moment to take communion together. But before we do, can I invite you to just a moment of prayer as we reflect on this ongoing theme of 2022.